You are listening to a podcast from The National. The stories of people flying from around the world to join Islamic States are numerous. At one point, there were tens of thousands of people doing so, all in an attempt to establish the caliphate. Now that that dream has been all but crushed, the group is manifesting itself in a more traditional sense of an extremist movement. But more than 8,000 kilometers away from where ISIL leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi ascended the pulpit at the Al-Nuri Mosque in Mosul, a small island in the Philippines has become the staging grounds for intense fighting between ISIL affiliates and the government. An attempted raid at one of these groups' leaders failed, and now it has sparked one of the largest insurgencies in the country. The nation of more than 5,000 islands has become a prime recruiting ground for a growing Islamic insurgency. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi, and this is Beyond the Headlines. Later in the show, we'll look at how Benjamin Netanyahu's son is beginning to provoke Jews around the world, and how date fruits sell for millions. But first, I'm joined by Florian Newhoff, who's been reporting from the Philippines on how it has become prime grounds for growing Islamic extremism. You reported on how one attempted raid on the leader of an ISIL-affiliated group in Philippines by government soldiers sparked an Islamist insurgency. Could you tell us what is exactly happening in the Philippines when it comes to the growing, uh, the growing insurgency? Well, uh, I think um, what we've been seeing is uh, for the last uh, two years or so, the um, jihadist uh, insurgency or uh, movement in uh, the southern Philippine, Philippine island of Mindanao has been gathering in strength. And um, from what I've been hearing, uh, it is ma- mainly because the uh, Americans have pulled out their special forces, which have been doing quite a lot to uh, help the Philippine, Philippines military to, uh, to uh, combat this insurgency. Um, so you're seeing um, not just one group, but several groups of gaining in strength and um, the, the catalyst to this crisis was um, uh, the Mauta group, which is which has pledged allegiance to ISIS um, recently, uh, to, take, responding to a, a um, Philippine military uh, attempt to snatch another group's leader by taking over the city of Marawi, and uh, this has been now sparked a battle that's been as ongoing has been going on since uh, May this year. The battles that are taking place in these cities, uh, the government forces, you said, are going to eventually wipe out the last pocket of fighters. But the destruction of the city and the failure to repair the people's lives, is that a win for the Islamists? Uh, Yes, this is a clear win. Um, The the Islamists uh, are um, clearly um, leveraging the dissatisfaction um, amongst the Muslim minority in the Philippines and the sense of uh, discrimination um, which is based on some very real, uh, uh, you know, some, 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 on, on reality to, to a large extent. And um, seeing, seeing their city be, being destroyed by the military who, who really, you know, don't have any in bad intent and just want to get rid of uh, these jihadists that are holed up in there. But seeing the city destroyed and living in squalid conditions in, uh, in IDP camps and displacement camps in the surrounding countryside and towns, really just heightens their uh, sense of frustration and their alienation and uh, their resistance towards the government. And um, from what I've been hearing on the ground and what experts have been telling me, um, this will clearly um, you know, boost recruitment of, of the group that's currently surrounded in Marawi, which of course still has uh, fighters on the you know, outside of the city and, and then also of uh, other groups probably. 
So I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but could you answer? I mean, why, why now? Have these groups always existed? Or, I mean, why the sudden insurgency? Um, yeah, I mean, the, um, the island of Mindanao and the sort of smaller islands and archipelagos in, in the south of the Philippines uh, have long seen uh, Islamist or, or Muslim insurgency. Um, then they shouldn't be confused with uh, with jihadists. Um, a lot of this is really like based on real grievances that the Muslim ex- uh, population has experienced in the past, and they, they strive for great autonomy. Um, but um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it's the the, um, the the departure of the American special forces has helped uh, more radical groups, um, you know, gain in strength and. Um, I suppose um, you'd have to say that you know, the rise of the uh, so-called Islamic State has uh, given them a sort of ideological impetus. Um, and the other thing that shouldn't be uh, ignored is that um, the government has passed a, a law called, um, well, has not passed a law, but has uh, negotiated a law called the Bangzamoro um, Basic Law with um, uh, another insurgent group called the MILF. Um, who uh, have long, uh, you know, fought the government, um, and, and during these peace talks, um, this law has, uh, you know, been discussed and uh, formulated. Um, and this law would call for even greater autonomy for 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 the for Muslim Mindanao, for the Muslim areas of the island of Mindanao. But so far, this law has not been uh, approved by parliament, and this is also a huge uh, source of grievance for. for for um, for the Muslims on, on Mindanao, um, and I think also the failure of, of parliaments to ratify this law over the past two or three years has also uh, played into the hands of, of uh, radical groups, which are hoping to uh, um, you know, radicalize society, the, the population in Mindanao. Recently, we've seen uh, Rodrigo Duterte crack down on uh, drug dealers pretty intensely. I mean. Does the uh, hardline president have anything to do with the sudden outburst? And I mean, what is his reaction to, to this? Well, um, yeah, he's a he's a, someone who responds quite forcefully <laughs> to the challenges put in his way. Um, he is he uh, declared martial law over the whole island of Mindanao, even though big parts of the island are, are actually, um, you know, not affected by the fighting at all. Um, he is though um, not uh, known to be anti-Muslim um, or Islamophobe, and I think his intention probably is to uh, to push this uh, Bangsamoro Basic Law through and uh, um, give the Muslims of Mindanao more autonomy, because he's also actually in favor of a more federal uh, structure for the Philippines, which the law you know, insinuates. Um, but so far, he he hasn't, even though he's pledged to push the law through. He, he hasn't done so, and the longer he stalls on that, the more he, yeah, the more he feeds uh, the uh, the insurgency. So, Florian, you reported from Mosul and Iraq uh, for quite a long time for us, and over there you uh, came into contact and you were reporting on the battle against ISIL uh, in, mm-hmm. in in different various cities. I mean, here it is, ISIL, uh, thousands. Of kilometers away, also having a presence. How mm-hmm. do you? I mean, what what are your impressions of the different uh, manifestations of the terror group all the way over in Philippines? Is it different? Uh, 
are they trying to achieve something else or or, or I mean what is your impression um, well I, I think clearly ISIS operates on a franchise uh, system based and um, these these guys were in existence before and they decided uh, you know they were they wanted to join the Islamic State they staged some gruesome executions uh, and published widely publicized them to get the attention of of the uh, the mother organization so to speak and they got it and they're they're, they're now part of the so-called Islamic State um, I mean I, I guess the um, ISIL provides people with a template um, they can use to, to fight their jihad if they uh, if they so wish. Ultimately, uh, these uh, at least in the Philippines, um, the grievances that, that provoke people to to radicalize um, are real and they need to be addressed. And if if, if there is political solution um, and an economic solution to the problems that people in uh, Muslim Mindanao face, then I don't think we'd be uh, seeing um, ISIL in the Philippines. And you were there in the Philippines. You spoke to uh, people uh, of various different classes. I mean, what are their uh, reactions to to uh, the uh, the Islamists' rise now? Um, you mean people outside of um, you? You mean uh, people uh, outside of outside of the, of the island? Yeah, exactly. Um, I haven't. But I gauged their um, opinion about it too much. No one really seems too concerned about what is going on in the Mindanao right now. I mean, the Philippines have so many different islands that sort of seems, I think, quite easy to cut yourself off from what's happening in another part of the country. Um, and the siege is very, like, very contained. Um, if you're 45 minutes away in the next city, you you, you can uh, you wouldn't know that there is a war going on almost, apart from the curfew. Um, so I think people are, because also it's a mostly a Christian country and the, the Muslim South is far away, people are not overly concerned with it. Um, and uh, yeah, they're basically going, going on their daily lives and uh, they have their own problems to, uh, to tend to. Sure. And then finally, uh, I mean, what's next? How will these insurgencies likely affect the landscape? Could we expect a surge or another crackdown uh, by the president, as he did with the drug smugglers? Mm, yeah, I mean, this is interesting. I think he's, I guess, at a at a crossroads now. If his gut uh, instinct seems to be to uh, to to uh, be forceful and uh, and use the confrontational approach to things, and. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if like the military, well, the military will, will certainly be uh, fighting these jihadist groups uh, as hard as it can. It has already done so, but really to um, to de-escalate and to 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 stop the insurgency from growing, um, he would have to um, he would have to find a political solution. He'd have to pass the 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 law for wider, more autonomy. He would have to. Um, somehow find ways for people's lives to improve on Mindanao, which is difficult because um, a lot of the reasons why these areas are particularly poor is because of corruption, but the corruption is not really from a, like from coming up from the very top, i.e. not from Manila, the government in Manila, but really more on a local level. So it's, it's hard to, um, to, to, to uh, improve the lives of people there from, from, from afar, but I guess uh, what you what you would need is uh, help uh, development aid.
from 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 outside from the international community to improve the lives there and the political solution that would address the grievances and uh, the uh, dissatisfaction that people uh, feel in, in Mindanao. All right, we'll keep an eye out to see how that develops. Florian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Moving back to the region, Benjamin Netanyahu, one of the two most despised Israeli politicians is facing justice over corruption charges. Arabs around the world are hoping for a guilty verdict and his expulsion from the Zionist policies that have riddled Palestine. However, we could be seeing the beginning of a more aggressive and ruthless version of the politician. Yair Netanyahu, his 26-year-old son, who has all of a sudden been propelled into the public eye through provocative social media. Ben Linfield joins us after writing a story for The National on the topic this week. Thanks for taking the time out, Ben. Sure thing. Tell us, who is Yair and how are people reacting to his rise? Well, Yair is 26-year-old son of Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, and um, he did his mandatory military service in the army spokesman's office, which in the Israeli context isn't all that sexy where because it's a country where combat service is valued, and he had more of a desk job and accompanying foreign journalists around. And he studied international relations at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's attracted a lot of attention now because of his uh, Facebook and online activity. I mean, but why does that matter at all? I mean, why, why is his activity relevant? It's relevant because he's the son of the prime minister. And so it's not as if any person is just making these posts. He's the son of the prime minister. He lives in the prime minister's residence. He has a security detail guarding his movements. And he's part of the overall framework of the Netanyahu's and part of what we could call the Netanyahu dynasty. So when he makes a post, it is scrutinized. People are wondering, why is he making the post? And uh, he's made a lot of controversial posts lately. Could you uh, give us an example of one of them? Well, his most controversial post was that he shared a cartoon um, which was based on anti-Semitic imagery. It showed George Soros, the American Jewish billionaire, dangling the globe. And it had also a huge lizard-like creature and an Illuminati figure that are featured in extreme right posts in the United States. In addition to that, it had Ehud Barak, a former prime minister who's critical of Yair's father, and it had um, two other figures who have been instrumental in mustering demonstrations against his father. One of them was Meni Naftali, who successfully sued Yair's mother for, he, he had been, excuse me, I should give a little background, Many Naftali had been in charge of housekeeping at the prime minister's residence, and he sued uh, 
Netanyahu's mother for improperly dismissing him and for abusive behavior against him, and he won the lawsuit. So he attracted a lot of bad publicity against the Netanyahu's. So Yair put all of these diverse figures together, and what it, it seems to show is that Yair feels that there's some kind of major conspiracy going on against his parents, when in fact, the reality of it is that his parents are being investigated on corruption charges. And uh, there's a lot of negative media coverage against them for that reason. It doesn't have to be explained just as a conspiracy. So, But the shocking, the shocking thing for many Israelis was that it deployed uh, anti-Semitic imagery and people were wondering how the son of the prime minister of the Jewish state could be dabbling in anti-Semitic imagery. Right, right. Uh, I just want to know, uh, most people know Benjamin Netanyahu's stance on this topic, but what is his son's stance, his son's stance on Palestine and the occupation of Palestinian territory by Israelis? Well, his son's stance, I think, is pretty close to his father's stance, except in a Facebook post, he put it in even more direct and coarse terms. He doesn't accept that there's any Palestinian tie to Israel, the land of Israel, Palestine, the West Bank. Um, he, he posted that... Uh, uh, they call them Jews because they're from Judea, and they call them Arabs because they're from Arabia. In other words, the Arab presence, in Yair's view, is not indigenous to Palestine, and they are foreigners from Arabia. Right. But, I mean, none of his uh, views will really matter unless he gets into politics. Now, from what I understand, his father has been quoted as saying he doesn't wish for his children to get into the same field that he's in. But, I mean, could this be a political move? I believe you spoke to some analysts saying that he's actually grooming his son to get into his profession. Well, pe people think that he could be grooming his son to get in. I, I haven't seen any solid evidence of that, although he did invite Yair as the only guest besides... Uh, the only guest at all when the Netanyahu's hosted the Trumps in May at a dinner, Yair was invited. And um, you can't dismiss his posts because they haven't been slapped down by his father. His father hasn't objected to his posts. So people think this may be expressing views that his father actually supports and agrees with but can't put in as coarse and a raw as a way as Yair does. Right. Well, he, he was quoted as saying, his son, uh, that his father is one of the greatest leaders uh, in the country's history. But In Jewish history. In, yeah. Ju in Jewish history, right. Which, uh, unfortunately, that translates in a completely different context when it comes from uh, the Palestinians' point of view. Benjamin Netanyahu is one of the worst uh, Israeli leaders. So if 
the scandal uh, the scandal is uh, uh, proven to to uh, incarcerate Benjamin or you know get him in trouble, what would this mean for his son's political career? Well, I have to preface my response by saying I don't think his son actually has a very bright political future. Um, I, I don't think he's he's going to make it in the Likud politics. Uh, the Likud politicians have defended him uh, when he's been attacked over his posts, but they don't seem to really like him. He doesn't have any charisma, and he's at this point doesn't really have uh, a base of supporters. So... I don't think his his career is going to take off, even if even if he wants it to, and even if his father would like to encourage that. Right. And what are uh, younger younger Israelis' attitude towards uh, the Netanyahu's in general right now? Well, I think the the entire country not not to look at it in a generational way, but I think the entire country is very much divided. I think the left, which opposes Netanyahu on the occupation and believes there should be a two-state solution with the Palestinians, is ardently hoping that the corruption scandals will bring Netanyahu down and that that could pave the way for some kind of a change and perhaps even give a chance for the new Labour Party leader, Yair Gabay, to take advantage of the situation and make a go of it in the next elections. The right, however, tends to go along with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's depiction of this as, as fake news, as contrived scandals, as the left wing trying to bring him down when they failed to do so at the ballot box as undemocratic activity. So you have that divide. Sounds like a Jewish Trump. Netanyahu? Yeah. I I think you can make you can make that analogy, yes. All right. In some ways. He he uses similar tactics to Trump. All right, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure thing. And finally, I'm joined by Anna Zacharias, who attended another date festival. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Thank you for having me. So explain it to us a little bit. I mean, a date festival, what what happens at one of these events? So this event is a little bit different than the Liwa Date Festival. Mm. The Liwa Date Festival in July is attended by... 60, 70,000 people. And it's the biggest event of the year in Liwa, which is a small oasis town on the fringe of the empty quarter. This date festival, much smaller audience, and it's date farmers buying more dates. So this is is a business side of dates, right? Well, sort of. So all of these farmers, uh, they're selling dates, but also they're buying them. So I said to some of the men there, you know, you already have a great farm. Why are you buying more? Mm. So what they told me was um, a lot of these farmers, they give their dates to the big date company, Alfua, uh, and then they don't always have time to package them up nicely for themselves. One of them told me that he does keep the nicer dates for himself, so he was there to buy some very nice dates, 
but keep the very, very best for his own majlis. Okay, okay. So we're talking about nice dates. Um, I mean, this, there was an auction at some point. They were selling, buying dates. What were the most expensive dates that you could buy there? Uh, I believe on this weekend, the most expensive uh, three kilogram package or box of dates sold for a thousand dirhams. Thousand dirhams. So about 333 dirham per kilo. So did you try any of those? You know, this was actually the first time I've entered a tent here and have come away without eating dates because all the dates were on auction. Although, of course, people were very hospitable in, uh, in, on the tea side of things. Okay, okay. So, so uh, when it comes to that, really, I feel like have dates? Well, farm technology has definitely changed. But we know at the National Year our camel and date experts. So tell us, has dates... Have dates changed over the last, you know, I don't know, a few years, 10 years? Have they gone sweeter? Well, these guys were all looking to Saudi and kind of have their eye on Saudi. They're all saying, oh, you know, that festival at Onesi, that's a great one. Um, I don't know too much on the agricultural side of things, so I don't want to speak to something I'm not so familiar with. But uh, what they were hoping, one gentleman remarked to me is saying, well, you know, Saudi... They have great dates, but mashallah, we have variety here. Uh, and I think it was the same fellow who told me, like, for example, he credits his own grandfather with bringing in the brand of date called uh, khalas. So Liwa is famous for debas, but khalas, he believes his grandfather brought it in. It was a gift. And he said at first nobody wanted this. It was too sticky. And you would throw it on the sand and it would get sandy. Whereas Debas, sand doesn't stick to it. No problem. But he says now every majlis there has khalas. So, you know, maybe, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. But maybe the varieties. Khalas, that's like one of the most popular dates, not only in the UAE, in the GCC. What's your favorite kind of date? Oh, that's a big question. I think I like Lulu. But maybe that's just because I really like the name. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the branding the branding matters, right. as these farmers will tell you. Thank you so much for joining us, Anna. I'd like to thank my guests, Florian Newhoff, Ben Linfield, and Anna Zacharias for joining me today. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing the show. You can find this and all the other national podcasts on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi. This has been another episode of Beyond the Headlines. Thank you and goodbye.